Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from an entrepreneur who is helping companies like Google and Monsanto to observe day-to-day changes on the Earth's surface using data gathered in space. The humanitarian use case is not just a longer list by 100x, but it's also a very powerful impact list. And I wouldn't be doing this, and nor would my co-founder, if we thought that the balance was anything like the opposite. That was Will Marshall, co-founder and CEO of Planet, a San Francisco-based satellite company. He came into the FT to talk to me about his company's potential to improve our understanding of the Earth and everything that happens on it. Welcome, Will. Thank you. How did you first become interested in space? Well, I was pretty interested in space since I was about seven or eight years old. I got interested in astronomy. I saved up with my pocket money for a pair of binoculars and... uh, when I was in my teens, I built a telescope in my CDT lessons at Tunbridge Wells Grammar School for Boys. <laughs> and when I built this telescope, which was just for fun, I then looked at Saturn through it. And it was the first time I looked through a telescope. And I was absolutely knocked off my feet with the beauty of Saturn's rings. And also Patrick Moore got invited to our school to see our telescope. And then we sort of became friends. And I went to a few of the Sky at Night episodes up in London. He took me up to Television House to watch those. And then that only garnered my interest. So you could hardly do anything else after that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, And then you ended up working at NASA. How did that come about? Well, I was invited by a maverick new director of NASA Ames Research Center, which is the one that's out in Mountain View, California, in Silicon Valley to start a new thing called the Small Spacecraft Office to test out new technologies for how we could change the way we build satellites. Maybe we could do them lower cost and more of them and play with different sorts of modern technology and how did that interface with what was going on. Space technology hadn't changed very much since the 60s and 70s when there was, of course, a massive amount of pioneering developments. But then it got a little bit risk averse and he was trying to inject a different kind of risk attitude. And so we started this small space office there. Right. And what were NASA producing? What kind of satellites were they building at that time? Well, what we were working on primarily was planetary and astrophysics missions that were lower cost or technology demonstrator missions that were purely just to see if some technology worked in space first. And I was involved with on the science team of a particular mission that we sent to the moon looking for water there and we found water on the moon which was really exciting on the south pole of the moon in a crater in the form of ice and a lot of it actually and so it's tantalizing to have so much water on the moon makes settlement ultimately easier putting a base there. But the interesting thing technologically was that this lunar mission cost only $69 million, (laughs) which by NASA standards was literally the leftover change from another mission. Most of the missions cost of order a billion dollars, you know, sometimes half a billion, sometimes a few billion, but it's around about a billion. And so to do something under $100 million is considered dirt cheap. So were you scoping out the possibility of creating settlements on the moon? Yes, We would say it's technically feasible. Yes, today it's become feasible again, actually, with the advent of private rockets of the size of Falcon Heavy, the SpaceX rocket, and the new Armstrong. Elon Musk's company. Yeah, Yeah. Elon Musk's company, and then the new Armstrong, which has been developed by Jeff Bezos, ultimately, if it comes to fruition, have the sort of capacity to send humans back to the moon, and they're in private hands, and they can be done much more rapidly and much, much lower cost. And then the water and other volatiles that we found on the lunar poles 
mean that most of the stuff that you need to drink, to breathe, to grow plants is actually already there. So actually the feasibility of this has become dramatically easier just in the last few years. Right. So unless you pivot, planet is not going to go into that business. You're well, not you will notice kind of lunar settlement yet. We didn't call our company Earth. Uh, <laughs> we called it Planet exactly to be agnostic for that sort of potential. But no, our focus is on the Earth. So tell us about Planet. How was it formed? And I believe that you really did found the business in a garage on the West Coast. So this is not just mythology. This is reality. <laughs> yeah, indeed, we did start it in a garage. So when we were working at NASA, we were thinking about how we could use consumer electronics, this incredible amount of energy and billions of dollars of research going into mass manufacturing smaller and smaller and more and more capable sensors and processors and hard drives and all this stuff in consumer electronics. We were trying to think about how do we harness that to advance space. And space technology had traditionally always driven the development of these technologies. And now it was sort of learning to follow in a way. And so we realized that we could put up satellites much, much lower cost and at much higher capability per kilogram of mass. And that mattered because launch is a really expensive business and normally we pay per kilogram. And so the smaller, more compact you can make this spacecraft that does the same function, the better. So we basically took the idea of miniaturizing, taking satellites that weigh 10 tons or several tons in mass, like the size of a bus, and making them the size of a toaster or loaf of bread. So our satellites are five kilograms, they're 10 by 10 by 30 centimeters in size. And by making them so small, we can launch many more of them. The thesis that we came up with early on was the mission of imaging the entire Earth every day. Because we realized with this smaller satellite technology, we could do a very different kind of imagery cadence. So the imagery of the planet was typically only taken every month or year. And by making it every day and at higher resolution, we could see change as it happens around the planet with a tremendous number of humanitarian and commercial benefits that would result. Tell me about the cost equation of all this, because, I mean, satellites, as you're saying, are normally the size of a bus and take a huge amount of money and Mm -hmm. energy to put them in orbit. But your CubeSats are in low Earth orbit, as you're saying, and can piggyback on other people's missions. Tell us about the cost differential between what you're doing and what the traditional satellite companies are doing. Yes, the cost differential is somewhere in the range of 100 to 10,000. It's either two zeros or four zeros or somewhere in the middle, depending on who you compare against and how and exactly. And you have to be thoughtful on this. But any industry going through a situation where there's even 100x cost reduction for the same capability is incredibly dramatic, of course, for that industry. And to give you a flavor of that, we have built and launched more satellites last year than the rest of the world put together, or roughly the same. Or something. Mm-hmm. How like many that. do you have in space now? So we have over 150 satellites in orbit today. It's the largest fleet of satellites in space. Now, our satellites are smaller, but still, we have the most satellites of any entity, more than any government or private actor. Now, you are saying that you're imaging the whole world every day. What does that enable you to do that we haven't been able to do before? See change. In short, you can't fix what you can't see. And so by seeing change, then we can change our behavior. What was happening before with this irregular imagery or regular but quite low cadence imagery was we were finding out about things after they happened, but it was too late to do anything about it. And for a lot of sustainability stuff, that was important, but also for a lot of commercial things, that's important. So take agriculture. In agriculture, There's no point just telling how well the crops did after the fact. What farmers want is intelligence during the crop growing season. That's, you know, a matter of a month or two long. And 
during that season, we can actually tell on a day-by-day basis how each crop is doing on a pixel-by-pixel basis using a special infrared spectral band on our satellites. So we literally can tell crop type, crop yield, as a function of time for every pixel on the Earth's surface that we take. And 26% of the land area of the Earth is agricultural land. And we can improve efficiency by 20 or 40%. Now, you're a classic startup financed by venture capital. I'm trying to envisage how those conversations with the venture capitalists went. So you said to them, I want to stick hundreds of satellites up in low Earth orbit. Not quite sure who the final customer is going to be at this stage. Mm -hmm. But we think there's enormous value in creating daily images of the Earth. So what was the pitch that you were making to them? Well, firstly, we turned up with a satellite that we'd built in our garage and plonked it on the (laughs) table. That's quite a good prop. Yes, exactly. And people were quite astonished with the technology, and they could see that a breakthrough was possible. And given our NASA heritage, they actually believed we might be able to do it. And, of course, there's always a risk posture that they take. Few venture capitalists really understood it, but a few did. And they bet on us and gave us some money, and I'm very thankful for them. And how much have you raised to this date? Quite a lot. Over $300 And who are your biggest customers? The largest sector is actually in agriculture. So Mm -hmm. about 40% of our revenue is in large agricultural companies like Bayer or Pioneer or Monsanto. And these companies use it to help their farmers do precision agriculture, give them intelligence during the crop growing season. So that's one category of customers. We also sell our data to governments for both reasons to do with security, like monitoring for coast guards, monitoring shipping activity or for civil disaster response. So after floods, fires, earthquakes, we work with the state of California right now on all the fire prevention by understanding all the fodder for fires as well as the extent of fires when they actually take place and helping the disaster response in those sort of situations. And even this week, we're working with the Brazilian government and their emergency response folks about the dam that collapsed. We have before and after imagery. It's beautiful that shows what exactly is going on. And it's tragic to know this, but this can help the disaster relief operators to get the medicine and relief to the right people at the right place and the right time. And then the final one, we've been selling our data in a big way is in consumer maps. So companies like Google that have online imagery, we are helping them to keep their imagery up to date. And in fact, last year, we bought Google satellite arm, which was building higher resolution satellites, and then we sell back the data to them, but not just them, other mapping companies as well. Right. And you have this saying that you want to make the earth searchable in the same way as Google makes the internet searchable. Can you expand on that? What do you mean by that exactly? Yeah, so our first mission was to image the whole Earth every day, and that took launching all these satellites. But now we get millions and millions of images down each day, and it's quite a quandary to know how to process that data. With the advent of machine learning and computer vision over the last few years, there's been tremendous developments in understanding how to extract features from imagery. So the same algorithms that you use to find a cat or a dog in a picture that Google and Facebook and others have developed algorithms for, we can apply that same fundamental machine learning capability to detect objects in our satellite imagery. And if we, in each image, say, this is a ship, this is a plane, this is a train, this is a road, this is a building, this is a tree, this is a farm, if we can create a map of that, and we can do that every single day, then we've indexed all the objects on the Earth, and then you could search that index. So a bit like Google figured out how to index what's on the web and make it searchable. We're indexing what's on the physical planet and making it searchable. So then you could just say, hey, how many trees are there in the Amazon? 
oh, and can you just tell me the locations of the trees that were felled between this month and last yeah. month? Or how many houses are there in X country? And give me a plot of that versus time. Or how many ships are there in the top 10 ports of the world that are between this length and that length? And between this day and that day, give me a plot of that. And that sort of output we call spatial information feeds. Is Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What increasingly customers want to use rather than just seeing all that imagery. And rather than having to look through thousands of images of open water to find the ships, we can just tell them the latitude and longitude and the size of the ship and the vector and this sort of information automatically. So I was at a conference the other day and there was a hedge fund manager talking about how he was using spatial imagery to count the number of oil storage tanks mm. that were in China. And that yeah. was a classic case of using machine learning technology to spot those. Yeah. And what amazed me was that um, by looking at the angle of the sun and the size of the shadow that was cast on the ground, it was possible to estimate the volume of oil that was in some of these uh, oil storage tanks. So he was trying to come up with an alternative measure of oil consumption in China on a daily basis using your imagery, yes. which is a pretty mind-blowing concept, isn't it? Absolutely. And we want to foster these kind of ecosystem of people taking our data and connecting to it with real use cases. Finance is an obvious area, commodity trading for agricultural commodities, oil commodities, mining output, even macroeconomics, you can imagine certain things being interesting. If you know the output from all the fields in China, plus the ships into and out of the ports, plus the building developments in the last month, maybe that somehow correlates with GDP. And that particular example is exciting. Yes, oil we did some analysis with a partner firm, I'm not sure it's the same one you spoke to, looking at the oil in China and, yes, exactly, measuring these oil tanks. Uh, we can tell the width, of course, and we can tell the height from the shadow. And because we always come over the same time each day, the satellites, and we know that very precisely. And we found that there was about twice as much oil in supply in China than the markets had understood, which is, of course, a big deal to be off by so much. <laughs> and so, obviously, commodity traders are interested in principle in that. But again, we have to get them in actual data streams, not just lots of pictures. And getting that right is the next step. And that's what I call searching the earth is all about. What's the wackiest use <clears throat> of your data? I haven't actually got any exciting use cases for you. But what I find astonishing is that every picture we get down, something has changed underneath. And so one of the strangest things I find is that you look and compare today's image and yesterday's image. And you think that by and large, the earth stays the same. But I think that's all because we've been trained on static maps, whether that's online maps or physical maps. And so you think of the world as roughly staying the same, but it isn't. It's very dynamic. Rivers move, buildings change, road surfaces change, vehicles obviously move, but trees get felled. And you notice this immediately when you look at the imagery. I can give you a couple of somewhat strange examples. I always talk about how there's lots of humanitarian benefits, including stopping 
wildlife destruction. And I often sort of joked, oh, we could save dolphins and whales with this. And lo and behold, some NGO ended up saving a load of dolphins somewhere in South America <laughs> with our data. And I was like, what? <laughs> you can't even see the dolphins, but how there was some happen? sort of, yeah, I don't know exactly how it happened, but they were somehow trapped by some infrastructure that was being built and someone figured this upstream and then created a way out. But I think that's the beauty of this is getting the data out there. People will find lots of things to do with it. And generally, having this sort of information empowers people to make smarter decisions. And a number of NGOs have been using it. I know that Human Rights Watch, for example, have been using it. They used it to track the Rohingya population that was fleeing in Myanmar. Absolutely. So are you making the feed available to them for free? Or how how does it work with some of your non-commercial customers? Sometimes we find sponsors, but generally we make it very low cost or free for NGOs where they're doing really important humanitarian work like Human Rights Watch do. And they often find funders that can help burn at least some of the overhead costs that it costs us. But yeah, the number of humanitarian use cases are very large. Refugee tracking, as you just mentioned, displaced people in general. And then a more recent example we've been working a lot on is mapping and tracking the coral reefs and making sure that we understand the corals. We see early when there's coral bleaching, that we stop illegal shipping and trawling activities around them, and so on and so forth. And we need to protect our oceans. And a lot of countries say they're going to protect it, but then they don't keep track of it. And it's hard, right? They can be large areas. But we scan it, and we can find those ships that aren't meant to be there, etc. Now, you're referring earlier to the deal that you did with Google. If I got this right, Google, in effect, sold you their satellite company, Terabella, in return for an equity stake in your company. And in return for having access to all the data that you produce. Some of the data, yeah. What is Google using that data for? Getting their maps more up to date, primarily, the satellite imagery layer. But there's also other potential use cases. In fact, there's a wide variety of ways in which the data can be interesting. So we're exploring things to do with disaster response together. Um, They're public alerting of certain disasters and getting the imagery out to the people that need it under those sorts of circumstances. And you brought in a number of sky satellites, I think, under that deal, which are higher resolution satellites. So what do you use those for? Essentially zooming in on more urban areas where you benefit from higher resolution data. So we scan the whole Earth at 3 metres per pixel, and then these satellites are 70 centimetres per pixel. So none of this can see a person or identify people, which is important from our standpoint because we're not trying to get into areas that affect personal privacy. But at 70 centimetres, you can start telling building infrastructure how many crates are on a ship or what type of plane, not just there is a plane. And these sorts of things are useful for a variety of reasons. Now, you raise the issue of privacy there, and the minute anyone talks about satellites, they always think eyes in the sky, and that this is somehow very sinister and that we're being watched from outer space. How do you make sure that the data feeds that you produce are not used for bad purposes? Yes. Well, firstly, there aren't that many bad purposes, and I really have rattled my head a lot and spoken to a lot of people about it. I'm not saying there are none, but as I just mentioned with personal privacy, that's something that jumps to mind. But because we're 500 kilometres away, it's like taking a picture of Edinburgh from London here and with our little telescope that sits in your hand. And you can't very well see a person from that distance. It just stands to reason the optic limitations. Even if you launched a really big satellite, you couldn't identify a person from that distance. So you could very easily spot a football pitch, but you couldn't identify the 
players on the pitch. No, exactly. And you could see a big crowd. And I'm not saying there are no privacy implications because you could track vehicles in principle. Of course, we're only taking one snapshot per day now, but maybe it could be more regular. But it doesn't strongly affect that. There are cases in refugees where you worry about a government misusing this information to then attack refugees or something. You can construct cases. But by and large, the overwhelming number of cases are all about improving agricultural yield, the wide-scale monitoring of our forests, of our marine protected areas and other things. And so the humanitarian use case is not just a longer list by 100x, but it's also a very powerful impact list. And I wouldn't be doing this and nor would my co-founder if we thought that the balance was anything like the opposite. And in fact, I think it's very important that technology entrepreneurs think very carefully about how their technology interplays with society. I mean, we're seeing this now and becoming more important, but I think it's something that we all need to think about. But I guess for you and for many other tech companies, you can absolutely control the inputs, as it were, but it's extraordinarily hard to control the outputs. So if I can give you an example, I mean, you were talking there about how you're using satellite technology to spot deforestation and to stop it, but arguably people who wanted to do illegal logging could also use your satellite imagery to find out where the most promising looking forests were, couldn't they? Well, in principle, yes, but I don't think that aids them very much because they know where the forests are, they just need to look for trees, whereas you can't hide when you knock one down. And actually, the resolution we did pick was exactly so that we could see an individual tree canopy. And that's important for forest degradation, where a lot of that happens in just a few trees. Some significant fraction, maybe up to 40% of all deforestation, is in what they call degradation. It's not large swaths of forest being taken out. It's little trees here and there. And so you need this resolution to be able to see an individual tree go down. So no, I think it overwhelmingly helps the enforcers of stopping deforestation. And are there issues of national sovereignty involved in this? I mean, as I understand it, and please correct me if I'm wrong, under the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, I think it was, there is no sovereignty in space. So you are at liberty to really film whatever you want or shoot whatever you want. Are governments getting upset with what you're doing, that you can track the building of islands in the South China Sea, for example, which I've seen amazing footage of? Do people get upset about this? Perhaps. And yes, it is international territory in orbit. Basically, sovereign territory goes up to 100 kilometers, and then above 100 kilometers, it's no one's territory. And so you can't fly a plane into somebody else's country's airspace without their permission, but you can fly overhead as long as you're above 100 kilometers above their airspace. And as a practical matter, there's actually a zone where you can't do either. You can't fly a satellite below about 200 or 250 kilometers, and you can't fly a plane above about 60 kilometers. So there's actually a gap where you can't do either. But yes, you're allowed to take pictures of any sovereign territory without their permission. There's no need to ask. But they can do the same as well. It's a fair playing (laughs) field in that sense. And it's also a means of holding governments to account, isn't it? I mean, as you were saying earlier, there are a lot of civil society, non-governmental organisations who are using your spatial imagery in order to check that governments are doing what they're promising to do. Absolutely. And I think that is fantastic. I think that if I step back slightly more broadly, we have these global goals, the Sustainable Development Goals. The world has agreed that we need to tackle poverty and feed everyone food security, water security, and access to basic medicine and all these. And satellite imagery can actually help monitor a lot of these. And you could say help keep the countries held to account, but also getting them the data that they need to make smarter decisions on a day-to-day basis. So it's an aid to them to reach those goals. 
And clearly the massive challenge confronting all of us is climate change. How can we use spatial observation data to combat climate change? How can we understand what is happening to our world better? And how can we use that to mobilise action? Well, stopping deforestation, that the carbon sinks, uh, stopping illegal fishing, which destroys those habitats and ecosystems, tracking the ice caps, tracking the output of pollutants from industrial facilities, you name it. I mean, making transportation networks more efficient, cities more efficient, agriculture more efficient, which is important to feed everyone on this collision course between the number of people the agricultural stocks and the rest of the species on the earth. There's sort of all those three things are on collision course. And satellite data can fundamentally enable us to more efficiently manage the very finite resources of our spaceship, the earth. Finally, you have built this extraordinary new data infrastructure looking at our world. What next for Planet? What is your remaining ambition? Well, the next thing for us is what we call searching the Earth or queryable Earth, as we earlier discussed, which is really the intersection of satellite data and machine learning and how that creates data sets that you don't have to have. Uh, a team of PhD uh, in, in, in satellite imagery processing to understand the imagery. In fact, you could just ask questions of the imagery, a bit like you go to Google. Ultimately, I believe that democratization based on the data and the machine learning will bring great fruits, not just to the big corporations and governments, but to the NGOs and to civil society. Thank you very much, Will. No problem. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week. In the meantime, do let us know what you think of our show. You can email us at tectonic at ft.com. And if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, take a look at our subscriber offers at ft.com forward slash offer. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.